0: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
1: My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and
2: I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center
1: and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness.
3: Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
0: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
2: Welcome to The Brink, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. There are few organizations in the world with as much lore around their history as the Walt Disney Company. Today, it's a multi billion dollar global company. But when it was first starting out, their success was far from guaranteed.
1: Walt Disney himself was no stranger to failure, he had faced it numerous times before he was just 25. But despite numerous setbacks and an infamous betrayal, he kept moving forward. He knew something greater was right around the corner. This is Disney on the brink.
2: Hi there, I'm Jonathan Strickland.
1: And I'm Ariel Kasten. And we are starting a two-part series on the inception of Disney.
2: Before we jump into that, though, Ariel, peek behind the curtain... This was actually the subject of our pilot episode before we ever published anything. We're both Disney fanatics, Huge right? Disney fanatics. We're fans of the movies. We're fans of the theme parks. And you know us. We get a little chatty. Mm-hmm. And uh, that pilot episode was approximately three days long. So truth we're going to do our best to divide this up into two episodes where we're really focusing on specific moments in Disney's history. Even the two episodes we're doing, we could do three more about the company because, as it turns out, the entire history of the Disney company has been one of risking everything on something no one had tried before.
1: Yeah, it wasn't always pixie dust and spoonfuls of sugar. That's true. And we thought about cutting out some of the content, but it is really important to understand how hard it was for Disney to even get his company stable and going, and then how hard it was— to take
2: that stable company and then take on the challenge of, and this is the focus of our next episode, tackling the first feature-length animated film. Yeah. Like, we don't even get into it in these two episodes, and we didn't in the pilot either, full full disclosure. But we will probably do a third episode sometime in the future just about theme parks. Because each time the company has tackled something like this, it was really putting a lot on the line.
1: It was pioneering a lot of things. Yeah. So, we're going to begin in 1901. Yes. In Chicago. And that's when Disney was born.
2: Yeah. And where Disney was born. And was where born he was Chicago. born in Chicago.
1: In December. Mm-hmm. And he always loved drawing. When he was a kid, he sold cartoons to his neighbors for extra cash.
2: Mm-hmm. And he would end up, uh, his family would move to Kansas City where he would attend elementary school or grade school. He moved back to Chicago and attended high school there. And he continued his interest in art. And uh, while he was a freshman at high school, he also would end up pursuing night classes at the Chicago Art Institute. So he was really serious about pursuing this love and turning it into a career.
1: Yes, but he was also serious about serving his country, it turns out, because when he was 16, he tried to join the Army to serve in World War I. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turns out uh, the Army said, kid, you're too young. So, determined to serve some purpose during the war, he didn't take no for an answer. This, by the way, would become a running theme in Walt Disney's life.
1: And uh, I'm really glad it is.
2: Yeah, so he ended up joining the Red Cross.
1: Yeah, and they shipped him over to France, and he drove an ambulance there. But unfortunately, by the time he got there, the war was sort
2: of ended. Well, unfortunately for someone who is determined to provide service to their country.
1: But fortunately for everybody else. Yes. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, we're saying, unfortunately, peace broke out.
1: Yes. Now, he did something which I, I really like. He covered his ambulance in cartoons. Mm-hmm. So even when he was serving his country— He was still drawing.
2: Yeah. He comes back to the States and, you know, he had already left school. So now he's thinking, well, what do I do uh, post-war? And he was considering a couple of different options. He thought about possibly getting into this this newfound silver screen acting thing that was starting to take off in the early 20th century or to pursue work as a professional
1: cartoonist. Well, he chose the latter. And in October 1919, he started working at the Pesman Rubin Art Studio. And he was really just doing illustrations for things like advertisements and catalogs and programs for theatrical shows and things like that.
2: Yeah. He also uh, found the benefit of being related to Roy Disney because Roy was uh, really good at business stuff and was the guy who actually landed Walt this gig in the first place.
1: And would be the guy who helped Walt with business stuff throughout Disney's early history.
2: Yeah, so he gets started in commercial art. He also meets another person who would become incredibly important in the early days of his career, Ub Iwerks. If you've ever done any research on Walt Disney or you've watched Drunk History, (laughs) you've heard about Ub Iwerks, a guy who was known for being innovative and incredibly efficient when it came to producing drawings.
1: Yes, well... Despite how good they were, they were both laid off in 1920.
2: Yeah, the company just wasn't didn't have enough business to give them. So the company downsized and they were they were affected.
1: Yep. So they started their own company, the iWorks Disney Commercial Artists.
2: This obviously is what would become the multi-billion dollar company, right?
1: No. They didn't quite learn from the fact that the company that they had been working at was struggling because they also struggled. And they both left the company they created because they didn't have enough customers and weren't making enough money to go work for the Kansas City Film Ad Company.
2: Mm -hmm. And now they were no longer doing still illustrations. They were actually doing animation. So this was the change where, you know, originally they were doing drawings and and Mm -hmm. illustrations. Now they're actually producing series of drawings to show them in sequence, to give the illusion of movement.
1: So, Walton Ubb, they're fickle. Uh, they try again with their own company. They start laugh gram films.
2: Yeah. So, they said, well, the illustration company didn't work, but animation seems like it has a promising future. So, instead of doing a commercial illustration company, let's do an animation company.
1: And, you know, they seem to have had the right idea. Because yeah. they got a contract with pictorial clubs in Tennessee to do six animated short films, For $11,000, which is a a pretty good amount of money back then.
2: Yeah, I have a feeling we'll be talking about pictorial uh, clubs a little bit in this episode. That's a sore subject in Disney history, but uh, they were focusing initially on stuff like fairy tales, which obviously the Disney company would continue that tradition when the animated studio fully Uh, takes off.
1: Yeah, Disney loved fairy tales. Yeah,
2: so they did Jack and the Giant Killer and Little Red Riding Hood. These were all silent films. It's before we had talkies. But there was another interesting feature about these. These were not just strictly animated films.
1: No, they also had a live actor in them. The first of which was four-year-old Virginia Davis. Mm -hmm. She did 13 of these. They were Alice comedies.
2: As in like Alice in Wonderland.
1: Yeah, Alice in Wonderland. It's funny to me because later on she did voice testing for Snow White.
2: Mm -hmm. And she would do some voice acting for a different Disney film.
1: Yeah, for Pinocchio. I guess she didn't follow the Singing in the Rain tradition of being a great silent film actor and a really horrible speaker.
2: That's a great reference though. Yeah, so this, to me this is amazing, right? Like Mm -hmm. not only are they – getting into the fairly early art of animation. I mean, animation had not, as, as a film type of, uh, of of entertainment, had not been around for that long. Not only do they get into it, but they're really experimenting with mixing live action and animation together. This would also be something that Disney, the Disney company would, would revisit in movies like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And so uh, it was cool to see that that was something that, Disney was working with before there was a Disney company.
1: They had to get additional animators to do all this. They could It couldn't just be Disney and Ub, although Ub was a powerhouse of an animator. Yeah. Uh, and Disney had all of these animators that he got work out of his garage, which is, you, you see a lot of companies do this when they start working out of the founder's home. Yeah. It's a great decision because you don't have overhead and...
2: Yeah, you're you're already paying a mortgage, so you might as well... You know, make use of that space because that way you don't have to go out and lease yet more office space and somewhere else.
1: pay for more insurance and things like that. Mm-hmm. But sadly, things with pictorial clubs, as Jonathan said, it's a sore subject, were about to go pretty darn south.
2: Which we will explain in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break.
3: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever.
0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
3: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
2: Okay, so we got Pictorial Clubs, uh, this company that had commissioned the short animated films that gave Ub and Walt a lot of uh, work early on. But the company ends up not being very solid on its own and goes bankrupt. Uh, So in that process, in order to try and cover the debts and the costs, the owners would sell everything to a company in New York. uh, And the money that was promised to Disney – Never made it to him.
1: Yeah, he went bankrupt despite suing Pictorial and winning the case.
2: Yeah, but they had no money to give him. So while he had the moral victory of a court decision on his side, he didn't have what was needed, that being those 11 G's that he was promised.
1: He also didn't have people after that.
2: Yeah, pretty much everybody said, you know what? I got to make a living. I got to put food on my plate. So uh, see you, Walt. Hope you do well. We're going to go for greener pastures. But one person did stick
1: around. Yep, that was Ub Mm-hmm. So Disney decides to move to California in 1923 because his brother suggested it. Yep. Being the great business-minded person he was.
2: They pick up and move from the Midwest. Ub remains behind, at least initially. And then after a little while when... Roy and Walt, mostly Walt, can talk to him. They convinced him to pick up stakes and follow them out to California. So Ub joined them. And this is where they would form what was initially called the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio. But Roy had a suggestion that they change it to...
1: The Walt Disney Studio. I like to think in my in my head canon that when... They named it the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio, and Ub came and joined them. That he would go to up to all their signs and write in little pencils and parentheses, and Ub. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that didn't actually happen, but it makes me happy to pretend it did. So, Roy took care of the business side, and Disney yeah. took care of the art side.
2: Yeah, because uh, Roy was uh, trained as a banker. So, mm-hmm. he really looked after all the, the books and the accounting and the budgets and things like that. And that freed Walt up to think more as sort of an artistic director.
1: Yes, and he he continued to try to push these Alice comedies. He was like, the problem we had with these was not with the product. It was with the company who bought the product. Yeah. yeah. And he found somebody who wanted to buy them. It was a distributor in New York, Margaret Winkler.
2: Yeah. Who ran a company called Winkler Productions. And from the, the stuff I've read, it sounds like Margaret Winkler was acting very much in good faith. Yeah. She
1: was very earnest about her, her desire for, to make these successful.
2: Yeah. Uh, which just makes what happens later more infuriating.
1: Yeah. Her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, he, what a dude. What a dude. Dude is not the word I thought you were going to say.
2: What a dud.
1: That's it. Uh,
2: <laughs> I'm not going to use any words that we aren't allowed to use on this podcast. No, it's a family uh, thank friendly you. podcast. Thank you.
1: He was quite the dud. A dud named Charles Mintz.
2: Yeah, if you wanted to have a stereotypical Disney villain in this story, you you could you could do worse than Charles Mintz.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he made a deal with Universal Pictures to make a new cartoon character using Walt and Ub, but he made sure when he made the deal that whatever characters they created, he would own.
2: Yeah, so essentially, he would get other people to do all the design work for him. But he would retain actual intellectual property ownership of that, despite the fact that he wasn't the one to, you know, draw the character or design the character. So one of the things that Disney and Ub thought about was the possibility like, well, what sort of character should we make? What kind of animal should we model this character after? They thought about cat, but there were a lot of cats out there. Felix Mm -hmm. the cat, for example. So they figured, well, we should stay away from cats. So they settled on a different animal.
1: Yes, Oswald the rabbit, the lucky rabbit. Thankfully, it wasn't Mickey yet because then we wouldn't have the mightiest of mice. Mouses. Of mouses, even yeah. more mighty than mighty mouse.
2: But but then, you know, full disclosure, while, while the Oswald story was tells us a, a big, valuable lesson about intellectual property and ownership, uh, the Disney company would eventually regain ownership of Oswald. But that would take a long time. So if it had been Mickey, there would have been a long time before we would have Mickey well, Mouse as a true character long, again.
1: long enough that it's not making either of our two episodes. So Vince was not only sneaky in the deal he made with Universal— because I'm pretty sure he didn't tell Disney and Ub about the clauses that he owned all the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh he also went behind Disney's back and talked to the animators that were working with him, basically getting their getting their loyalty.
2: Yeah, to to say that, you know, remember you're working for me. I'm the guy who's bringing in the contracts. Uh your boss Walt is directing all the art, but he's not the one landing the gigs. So you really work for me, you don't really work for Walt. And so, you know, Mintz had managed to land a pretty lucrative deal for himself at least, mm-hmm. where he had promised uh, 26 Oswald shorts. Meanwhile, Disney and Ub, they were taking this opportunity to really push the, the art form of animation and to create these animated shorts that had more of a storyline, more characterization. You know, before they were, cartoons were essentially kind of like little slapstick shows where no one really had a a distinct personality, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly not one that carried through from cartoon to cartoon. They were taking the opportunity to establish Oswald as having a personality, having that be consistent and building from short to short. So Walt is acting in good faith, trying to really expand the art form all the while Mintz was quietly going to animators and luring them away so that walt would have no leveraging power and walt even got a little bit of a head start warning about this mm-hmm. because ub being loyal to walt said no i'm not going to i'm not going to betray my friend and my partner here on just because you want to have this but he was the only one.
1: Yeah, and he told Walt about it too. Yeah. But Walt was too optimistic. So he he went to bat for all these animators who were basically stabbing him in the back. He tried to get them more money. But by that time, uh, Mintz already had them all in his pocket. And so Mintz actually tried to force Disney to make these, these animations for less money.
2: Yeah, so what Disney was saying was the amount of work we're putting into this justifies – Expanding our budget, essentially, you know, let's let's nearly double the budget per short. Mm-hmm. And Mintz's uh, counter offer was, you know what, let's not double. Instead, let's cut it into almost half. Yeah, which is that's not a that's not a very uh, generous negotiating tool. Where you know, if I were to come up to my boss and say, I really think I deserve a raise, and my boss said, you know what, I think you deserve to have less money than what you make now, mm-hmm. that's rough.
1: Yeah, but, you know, Walt Disney was an optimist. So he and Ub left and they started another company.
2: And this time they said, we're going to make sure that any characters we create, we own mm-hmm. the intellectual property there. We're not going to ever let anybody else come in, take control of what we make, and then use it against us.
1: Yes, and and this is around the time we get Mickey Mouse, a.k.a. Mortimer Mouse, which was his first name, and there are lots of there are lots of stories about how he came about. One is that he was developed by by Walton Ubb and a high school boy named Les Clark who was working in a diner that they went to who really wanted to work for them.
2: Yeah, another story was just that they were sketching characters on a train, ultimately came up with the design of the mouse. Uh, Walt wanted to name him Mortimer, and it was his wife who said, that's far too morbid a name. You should pick mm-hmm. something fun like Mickey. Mickey. What the actual truth is, this is one of those stories that's kind of entered into lore to the point where you can't really be certain where the truth lies, but mm-hmm. it's probably somewhere in that general neighborhood.
1: They probably looked at the cartoon and said, man, you're so fine, cartoon. Yeah. Hey, okay, Mickey, you're yeah, so fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, folks. Anyhow, you Mickey— You almost
2: got me off on a tangent about how that song was originally called Hey Kitty, but go ahead.
1: Anyhow, Mickey had his first short, Playing Crazy, followed by Steamboat Willie, mm-hmm. which it took me more time than I'd care to admit to realize that Willie was the name of the boat.
2: Yeah, Steamboat uh. Willie's is the name of the boat. <laughs> was... It was It was also the first uh, sound cartoon, right? It was yes. the first cartoon with sound, and it's— uh, uh, it's adorable if you haven't seen it. It's super cute. yeah.
1: Lego has a, uh, a new Steamboat Willie Lego set, which is quite lovely.
2: Yeah, and it turned out that Ub was like the way that Walt was able to get so much done so quickly because he was so fast. He was able to produce far more drawings per day than any of the other animators. In mm-hmm. fact, he could produce as many drawings per day as half a dozen animators could collectively.
1: Oh, it's ridiculous, man. But they weren't content just to stay with Mickey. So next they launched Silly Symphonies, which was a series of cartoons and not just a bunch of shorts.
2: Yeah, they, um, they were all about experimenting with incorporating music more directly with the cartoons to make the music kind of almost like it's a character. Within those, those cartoons.
1: Yeah, and then Disney did something that has been hugely successful for the company. Uh, he stepped into merchandising.
2: Yep, he got an offer to license Mickey for uh, a very, very lucrative deal for pencil tablets for mm. $300. But more importantly, this taught Disney there is a market for actual merchandise with these characters. And because he owned the intellectual property, they could make these sort of deals and that it could end up being a very lucrative source of revenue.
1: And boy, howdy has it been. Yep. Now, unfortunately, Iwerks in Disney had some creative differences and Ub left the Disney company in 1930. mm mm-hmm. uh,
2: He would start his own company, the Iwerks Studio. And uh, he introduced a brand new character, Flip the frog.
1: You know, we'll talk more about that after this quick break.
2: Yeah.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
3: Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying, and even deadly, is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
2: So flip the frog, clearly one of the iconic animated characters in history. I have I can't even imagine what he looked like. <laughs> yeah, no, so no. I Iworks launched his own company, but it wasn't like it was a huge hit all the park. I mean, he was a very he was incorporating innovations
1: mm-hmm. that the animation world had yet to see. And he could turn out those cartoons because mm-hmm. he's a very fast worker. But here's the thing. He started his company partially due to other people's influence. And one person in particular, Pat Powers, who gave him financial backing for his own studio.
2: Yeah. Uh, It turned out that Powers sort of wanted to create a competitive force that could go toe-to-toe with Disney. Mm -hmm. And uh, Iwerks wasn't aware of that. And he, he would later essentially say that had he known that that was the motivation and that it was all about almost essentially taking down Disney. He would have done things differently because while he and Walt had their differences, their creative differences that led to the separation, he didn't want to, you know, grind the Disney company yeah. into the sand or something.
1: And, and Pat was totally playing him. Pat had issues with Disney because Pat was trying to be all sneaky and a, a shady business person and Disney and Roy saw it and suspected it and had they had legal battles and disputes and arguments over revenues, and so this was really Pat's way to get at Disney.
2: Yeah, so while Ub wasn't aware of that when he set out to create this company, the fact that it was related to Powers meant that Walt took this particularly hard, Mm -hmm. and apart from being stubborn, Walt could hold a grudge— so this yeah. further drove a wedge between him and Iwerks that would not be repaired for yeah. quite some time.
1: And to seal the deal, Iwerks sold his shares in the Disney company, $3,000 worth.
2: Which would be worth how much today?
1: $4 billion.
2: Yikes. Yes.
1: yes. Now, now the thing I was wondering is, so Ub was really the person who was making all of this animation for Disney. Yeah, like Disney the vast was,
2: majority of it, yeah. Disney
1: was the artist, but Ub, as we said churned out artwork at an astounding rate. So, how did Disney cope?
2: Well, he had some other great animators to rely upon. People who we later would refer to as the Nine Old Men. And these were uh, animators who would become legendary in the medium. They became known as uh, the people who would design and animate some of the most iconic characters in animation history. They you You could argue they created the aesthetic for Western animation. Like like there were so many people who were emulating the style that was created by this group of animators. Mm-hmm. And it included Les Clark, whom we mentioned earlier, and uh, Wolfgang, Woolley, Reitherman, Milt Call, uh, Ollie Johnston, Mark Davis, and others. So when you look at those classic Disney cartoons and films, And you see certain elements uh, there that you, you, you just sit there and you say, that's a Disney product. Like even if you didn't see the title or anything like that, you just saw a little bit of animation. It's pretty easy to pick out Disney from everybody else. And these were the guys that helped define that. And not only did they set the tone for this aesthetic, they actually were really pushing animation to the point where it was starting to get recognition from the industry, the entertainment industry at large. Yeah,
1: they were winning Oscars for Three Little Pigs, honestly.
2: Which yeah, that was a big one. Uh, it, also, it's an adorable Disney short.
1: It is. Although I would say I've seen some pictures of the original Three Little Pigs costumes from the Disney theme parks.
2: Okay, those are terrifying. They're
1: frightening.
2: Yeah. They, well, so was the original costume for Mickey and Minnie, which was before the theme parks. It was just, it was uh, promotional costumes and... Yeah, it's the stuff of nightmares.
1: Yeah. But yeah.
2: Uh, but yeah, The Three Little Pigs, which had the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, uh, was truly a masterpiece of the short form. It was one of those that really showed how how strong a command Disney's animators mm-hmm. had.
1: Now, they were hitting another problem at this time, though. Even though they were getting recognition, their shorts were very expensive to make. It cost them a lot of money for very little product, Twenty five thousand to thirty eight thousand dollars per short,
2: and, and this is again, you know, you're talking about the the nineteen thirties. That's, I mean, it's a lot of money today, but it was a huge amount of money then. And while Disney had some pretty decent leverage in getting their uh, their shorts accepted by various theaters, the way it would mm-hmm. work is that you would work with theater chains, most of which were owned by major studios to show your films, like they'd pay you a certain amount. And Disney was really good at leveraging that. But because these were shorts, it wasn't a huge amount of money per theater. Mm -hmm. And so they were looking at this diminishing return on investment, right? They they had a smaller and smaller profit margin because they were spending so much extra time and effort and innovation in creating these, these shorts that they were putting more in the investment than they were starting to get back from uh, the the distribution.
1: Mm-hmm. But the, the problem is if they didn't put all of that effort and all of that additional resource into it, people wouldn't demand them as much.
2: Right, yeah. and they had come to expect that from the company. And so you don't want to reverse that trend, obviously. You mm-hmm. want people to expect the best from you because if you're consistently delivering that. And they were also running into trouble like, One of the problems with success is you definitely want to duplicate your success after you've hit it. And they were starting to find that that wasn't always easy to do. In fact, even Walt himself, as he would try and take a personal hand in creating cartoons, and we'll talk about this more later, um, he was finding it challenging. So this was setting up a pretty tough situation. They were not really in a great position financially to continue creating animated shorts and expect to continue to grow as a company yeah and then what do you do instead of that what could you possibly do instead of your your bread and butter ooh I know what's that
1: well Walt knew you could make a full-length featured animation film
2: you could do that but that would be crazy
1: why is that
2: well because nobody had done it yet
1: but Disney's an innovator
2: well I'm sure that that process wasn't perfectly smooth and level and easy. And in fact, I know for a fact it wasn't.
1: It wasn't, but we also know for a fact that it turned out well. However, at the time, people were calling it Disney's Folly. Yes. This idea of creating a feature film that was all animated.
2: It's because, so Walt, first, he, he had to talk to his animators and convince them that this was a good idea. And he had chosen Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as the story that they should tackle first. He had loved that story. He had seen a silent film version of it as a kid. He thought that that was a perfect uh, uh, candidate for a cartoon. I mean, it's, it's a it's a property that's in the public domain because mm-hmm. it was out of copyright. Yeah. So he thought this is a perfect opportunity for us. He convinced his animators. Then he announced it to the world as sort of like, you know, burning the bridges behind you after you've crossed them. And that's when the industry said, that is insane, Walt. You will never make it. And that's when they called it Disney's Folly. Yeah. And for a while, it looked like they might be right. Yeah.
1: To me, it's amazing that even his brother and his wife thought it was folly. It was yeah. very hard to get them on board at the beginning.
2: So that's what we're going to focus on in our next episode. Because I would argue that this Brink episode was more about you had you had Walt Disney who had faced failure numerous times and he did not give up.
1: There's that old adage, doing the same thing over and over.
2: And expecting different results is a sign of insanity. Yes.
1: Disney essentially did the same thing over and over and found success. Yeah,
2: well, it's because what he was doing was great. It's just that he wasn't always in control of what the product was, and that was the main problem. And that was a hard lesson to learn, but he learned it. Yeah. So, in this episode, we would say that this was a brink where it was the brink of success. Like, he he didn't allow failures to discourage him from pursuing his dream of a career in art.
1: And he had plenty of opportunity to let them discourage
2: him. Oh, yeah. Going bankrupt is no small shakes, and he went through it a couple of times. So this is the story of, a, of the founding of a company that then started to gain some momentum, but then it kind of maxed out, right? We've mm-hmm. reached this point where the animated shorts are no longer as profitable, even with Disney's leverage, where he's able to get higher uh, licensing fees, higher distribution fees than other com- competitors. It still wasn't enough. So he was going to try and take another leap And the question was, would that leap propel him even higher up the ladder of success, or would he crash and fall at the brink of failure? And so we all know you know how the story turns out, but we're going to explain how we got there in our next episode.
1: Yeah, but in the meantime, if you have suggestions for episodes you'd like to hear, topics you'd like us to talk about, you can email us. How can they do that, Jonathan? They
2: can send us an email at feedback at show,
1: And if you want to learn more about us or see our full catalog of episodes or, I don't know, just tool around on the internet for a little while, you can visit our website at www.thebrinkpodcast.show And until next time, I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. The Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel
0: safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community.
3: There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a
0: community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club. The world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you <laughs> the forehead.
3: It's awesome.